Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carter. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm from the Mandeville dimension of the harbor. So we're doing a series on alignment for three weeks, maybe longer, but um, Pastor Marvin wants to get us to think that in our spiritual growth, there's three things to be thinking about, body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. Your body is very important. God loves your body so much, He's going to resurrect it from the dead one day. That's how much He likes it. And you might have shed some weight as soon as you come up out of the ground. But He is, uh, He likes your body. He formed and fashioned it in your mother's womb and said, That's good. That's good. Yeah, we'll see in a few more months when it comes forth. God loves your body. He formed and fashioned it. He's going to resurrect it from the dead. And you'll feel better in life when you take care of it. So last week, if you were not here, you should go online and listen to Emily's message. Emily knocked it out of the park. She talked about how valuable a fast is, not just spiritually, but what it does for your body. It kind of resets your body. Things get in tune again when you do a fast. It's really, you think, oh, I'm starving. Your body's actually saying, hey, thanks for not sending all that crud down here today. And for two or three days, your body really does a reset and, and gets healthier in a fast. So along with the spiritual value, there's physical value. She talked also about um, myths and lies we believe about the body and about how that it's not all that expensive, that there is a lie that it's too expensive to eat natural and eat healthier, and it's really not. So she had great tips for just how to make some improvement on your overall health so that your mind is more alert. You have more energy. You're able to give and serve your family because you're not groggy. And when you open your Bible to read or pray, your, your mind is not foggy. She said the four leading causes of death in America are something we can change with our diet and a little discipline to eat better and get some exercise, even though all you can do is walk. The four leading causes of death you can fix. You're not a victim to any of them unless you make yourself one. So it was a great message, very inspirational. And uh, I just encourage you, listen to the message and then make, make a little small change right now. Just a small one right now. And maybe come April or May, Add another small little change. And then in the middle of the summer or in August when school starts up, make another small change. And by the end of the year, you will have made not two, not four, not six, maybe eight degrees of change in your life. Just do it small. Don't get radical. Don't jump up and say, I'm going to change everything because that will last three days. And you won't do anything after that. And then you'll feel ashamed of yourself and feel unworthy. Don't, don't make big goals that set you up for defeat. Yeah. All right. So anyway, if you didn't hear the message, go get it. Emily was really powerful. All right. So today I'm going to talk to you about your soul and the need to do soul care. So uh, our verse for the series is 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 
It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That means to make you holy in everything about you. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important to understand there's a difference between your spirit and your soul. If you don't understand that, you'll be confused forever about how to grow as a Christian, and you'll misunderstand certain parts of the New Testament. You must understand there's a difference between your spirit and your soul. We think it's so important that we added a class to the Journey series. When people now join the church, we have a whole class, class number three, devoted to that topic, that there's a difference between your spirit and your soul. When you accept Christ, He moves into your spirit, not your soul, not yet. He's going to spend the rest of his life working his way into your soul. In fact, go ahead and put that first diagram up. Pastor Marvin and I checked with each other on the phone to make sure we're in agreement on this. Your spirit, if you have received Jesus Christ, you received him into your spirit. Right now, your spirit is holy and righteous because a holy and righteous life has been imputed into your spirit you never sin anymore from your spirit anytime you sin today tomorrow all your life you do it because you betray your true self which is spirit and you wander out into your soul and do something out of the soul and its brokenness Your spirit right now is holy and righteous because a holy, righteous life is in there. One scripture says, He who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So right now, in you, if you're a believer, there are two spirits. There's the Holy Spirit living in you. And then there's another spirit that's made up of you and Jesus joined together. At least that's how I read it. You and Jesus have formed one new spirit, and your spirit takes on his life. Christ is your life. All right? So your spirit's awesome and great. You might say, well, Carter, I was kind of depressed this morning. Oh, well, thanks for telling me about your soul. Your spirit wasn't depressed. Spirit's never depressed. That's how you can catch yourself every morning. You're feeling depressed, feeling discouraged. Wake up. Say, hey, 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 hey. Now, wait a minute. I know who I am. I'm one with Christ. Christ, are you depressed? No. Yes, then neither am I. First John four seventeen says, as he is, so am I in this world. Well, how is he? He is not bipolar. He is not depressed. He is not grumpy from overeating. He is not falling asleep because he ate too much at lunch. So your body might be getting whacked. Your soul might be very disturbed. But your spirit is always just fine. Because the just fine one of the universe lives in you. You're welcome. 
It's your soul. It's your soul where there are problems. And you came to Christ with all this damage in your soul. Just like you came to your marriage with all this damage in your soul. And the struggles you and your spouse have, oh, y'all brought that to the marriage. She didn't create it in you. He didn't create it in you. Y'all are just triggering what you already have and brought to the marriage. So that's helpful. Be kind to one another. All right. Suppose I said to you, and I guess I will, uh, take your Bible and turn back to Genesis and go back to the chapter where all a man's problems began. If I ask you to do that, where would you go? Where would you go in Genesis? All the way back to the chapter where man's problems began. What chapter would you now be in? Three. Very good. Chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3? The serpent. The tree. The fruit. The eating of it. And sin came into the world. Okay, is that where man's problems began? What if I told you... Did you know there's, there's two chapters at the beginning of the Bible and two chapters at the end of the Bible where there's no sinners and no sin? No sinners and no sin in the first two chapters and the last two chapters. But from Genesis 3 to Genesis, what are there, 22 chapters in Revelation? Through 19-ish, maybe 20. <laughs> there is sin and sinners and bad stuff going on. But in the first two chapters of Genesis, there is the creation of all life. And at the end of every day, when God saw all that He had made, He said, He looked at what He had made and said, It is good. It's good. I like it. Another good day of creating. Everything He made, He said, It is good. Except for one thing. Yeah, that's right. Remember when He created Adam, He had not created Eve yet, and He said to Adam, or he said to himself, really, it says, and God said to himself, it is not good for man to be alone. Alone. So man had a problem before sin came into the world. Here in the Garden of Eden, there was a problem. Aloneness. There was a problem. Adam didn't even know he had a problem. God probably said, hey, Adam, uh, we've decided you're alone. And he said, I'm a what? You're alone. I don't know what you're talking about, God, because you and I, we connect every day. So this is, I think, one of the reasons why he named all the animals. The naming of the animals, as you know, I read one atheist was such an agnostic mouth. He said, oh, look, there's... 55,000 species. How's Adam going to name every one in a day? You know, he'd have to be naming one every three seconds. That's not what Adam did. Adam just named animals around the garden that were around him. And it was pedagogical. It was a teaching moment. You educators, you liked that word, didn't you? Pedagogical. 
So that Adam said, okay, God said, hey, uh, I created them and I gave you a voice. I want you now to create their names. Go ahead. Whatever you say, that'll be the name. Go ahead. Go ahead. What do you want to call them? So Adam probably said, okay, we'll call them Mr. and Mrs. Rabbit. That's Mr. and Mrs. Squirrel. That's Mr. and Mrs. Frog. That's Mr. and Mrs. Aardvark. And God said, that's good. You're creative. And he named the animals. And then God said, so what do you notice? They come in pairs, God. They come in pairs. It's Mr. and Mrs. Yes. And so you are a Mr. Where's my Mrs.? I think the whole thing was just to teach him something, show him something, that he was alone. So Adam was alone, and he didn't know it. God brought him Eve, and he realized when he said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he meant, wow, she doesn't hop around on all fours. Wow, (laughs) she doesn't have fur and antlers. (laughs) This is someone I can have intimacy with. And so they did. And so chapter 2, the second chapter that has no sin in it, says, and the man and the woman were both naked, naked and not ashamed. Then, chapter 3. Now, after they eat from the tree, they're naked and ashamed. Yeah, you know, that's the difference between naked and naked. You know, you're naked because God is glorious. You're naked because you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. So, they ate from the tree. Sin came in. And God comes down and says, okay. What's the story here? And he's got three questions. Where are you? Meaning, okay, where are you in this story? I know where you are. Come on. Where are you in this story now? Secondly, who told you that? Thirdly, what is this you have done? And after all the sin was identified and then God made clothes for them, then he said, okay, go back and pack your toiletries Get your little bag together because tomorrow everyone leaves the garden. I'm just, I'm kind of liberally making up. Okay, you with me? So I can imagine God left and Adam looks at Eve and Adam storms off to the other side of the garden. I can imagine in my mind, he's over there and he's kicking dirt clods and he's breaking sticks and he hit a tree once and didn't do that again. And he's really furious and he's frustrated and he's mad at himself and he's mad at her and he's mad at God and mad at the serpent and he's frustrated, he's angry and she's over there. She stayed in the garden and she's over here now. She's weeping and she's thinking, oh, I've ruined it. Oh, will he ever talk to me again? Oh, oh, what have I done? And he's thinking, man, you can't tell her anything. And she's like, oh, he'll never listen anyway. Right? Now, in chapter 3, I need to get bigger ears, don't I? In chapter 3, Adam is alone, and he knows it. He knows he's alone now. Aloneness means separation, division. We're angry at each other. I'm not forgiving you. 
I have lots of pain now. I'm hurting you. You're hurting me. Ever notice this in your marriages? Sometimes you get in bed after you've had a fight about the same dumb thing over again and you both are still resolutely hanging on to your position and you get in bed with your backs to each other and you're alone. Yeah, I mean, your spouse is just right there. You could feel them, but inside you're alone. You're alone. Starts early in life. How many of you grew up in a home where your mom and dad fought and yelled and maybe eventually divorced? And you would lie in your bed at night as a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and you'd listen to them yelling. And you wish they wouldn't yell. You wish they wouldn't do that. You wish your dad wouldn't do it. Dad, don't bring it up again. And you can hear them in their yelling. And you're lying in your bed and you're feeling alone. You're feeling alone. Some of you might have had a sibling who got a rare disease and died. And it was painful. And you watched your mom and dad go through trauma. I met a woman who, she said, while she was in her mother's womb, with two weeks to go before she was going to be born, her seven-year-old sister had a routine tonsillectomy and died. This is back in the 40s. And she died. Well, they had the funeral, I imagine, a few days later. And so Catherine's born like 10 days after the death or after the funeral. She comes into a home where they are struggling with aloneness, pain, hurt, Husband doesn't know how to comfort the wife. The wife doesn't know how to be comforted. She won't even receive comfort, maybe. Then she gives birth to a baby, and after a few months, I tell, I'm sure that baby could tell, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. And as she grew up, she realized, as she came to learn, she always felt that early infancy aloneness, and she always felt like she was an orphan in her own home. She told me that story. She said, I always, even my brother treated me like I was just a kid, kid from next door or something. Never felt loved. She grew up always feeling alone because she was living with three people who now wrestling with aloneness, the pain of having lost something. So when I use the word aloneness, yeah, I'm talking about a big umbrella of all kinds of pain and hurt. So in chapter 2, Adam was alone and he didn't know it. You and I live in the world that starts at the tree and we are waiting and groaning until a new heaven and a new earth come. We live in this world where we are alone and we know it. We suffer and have pain and hurt and it divides us and separates us. And I get mad at you and you get mad at me. And all that creates this deep sense of aloneness. That's our first problem in the world was aloneness. Then when sin came, sin exacerbated aloneness. I've had two women tell me the story that in the fifth grade, both of them in the fifth grade, one in Louisiana and one in California, both of them had their girlfriends turn against them. They made up a little book, We Hate Chrissy book. And all her little girlfriends signed it 
and she saw it. And both of them told this story that in the fifth grade, their friends rejected them, turned against them for a few days, and they were an outcast. And I can imagine easily she went home at night and she'd lie in bed. She didn't tell her mother. She would lie in that bed and feel alone, alone. Earlier when Michelle was leading us in worship, Michelle mentioned that some of you have hardness in your heart. You know why your heart is hard? Because you have an old wound you've never healed. You've never dealt with it. You've been betrayed. You've been rejected. Your parents fought and made you afraid. Your parents divorced and made it worse. Your dad didn't show up. Your mother didn't show up. Your mom and dad manipulated you into hating the other person. And you would lie in bed and feel alone and feel alone. And you've got a rift in your heart with God, with them, with all the world. At the cross, God dealt with your sin to save you from your sin. The rest of your life, He wants to save you from aloneness and all the pain and hurt. So I want to look at the next slide here. Aloneness has these qualities about it. The first thing about aloneness that we're born with, aloneness gets inflamed by pain. When others hurt you, it inflames this deep sense of aloneness. Then, pain always leads to a secondary emotion. Anger. That's right. You ever heard that? That anger is a secondary emotion. So when you're driving down the road and your jaw's jutted and you're mad at somebody, okay, that's a second emotion. It's secondary because it showed up second. Something else showed up first. What showed up first? Pain. So then you have to stop. Get into the presence of God and say, Lord, why am I so angry? What, what am I upset about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That guy back at the office today. That guy out in the yard today at the plant. Yeah, that guy. What he did and what he said. And when we had our little staff meeting with our foreman, he had to smart off and make fun of my idea or whatever. And so you're mad. You're mad about something. And it's because he challenged you. He he offended you, he upset you, he might have emasculated you, and that brought pain. So pain inflames this sense of aloneness, and then you drive along and you nurture it in anger. You start thinking, yeah, that guy, no one likes him anyway. I hope they fire him. I wonder how I can sabotage him. And, and you start getting all this anger toward that person who's hurt you, and then you lie in bed that night and you think, you know what? You know, everybody's a, everybody can't stand that guy. I'm telling you. And you pretty soon begin to think you have never done anything wrong. You're the, you're the most amazing employee they have at this place. And that person is the wrong one. They're the fly in the ointment. Why, we'd all smell so great around here if it weren't for him. And you just, you develop these convictions. I'm right. I ain't ever wrong. They're always wrong. And see, we do that when we get in bed with our backs to our spouse. We lie there, and in anger, we nurture this sense of aloneness. And then we start developing convictions 
that are really lies. We develop these convictions that life works like this. I'm like this, and I'm good. You're like this, and you're bad. God's like this, and he's trying to figure it out like I am, but he's on my side probably, not yours. And, you know, I start developing these, I start developing these convictions that I'm unloved, and I'm deserving. Something's wrong with you. And all of it's wrong. Most of it's wrong. And then, if we get challenged on it, we defend it in pride. I know a woman who can't stand her family, her mother and her sister and her brother-in-law and a sister-in-law. And this woman's a Christian, and they're not so much spirit-filled believers. And she was counseling with me one time, and I said, you know, I think you ought to forgive them for just who they are. And I'm telling you, her face twisted up, and she shook her finger and said, don't you tell me what I ought to do. It's like this Christian woman defended in pride her right to have an ugly, bad attitude and an unforgiving bitterness toward them. Man. Then what happens is we begin to express that aloneness and that pain, anger, lies, and pride. We begin to express it in selfer living. And you say, oh, do you mean selfish living? Oh, no, it's worse than that. <laughs> Selfer. That's where you're doing everything for yourself. Self-protection, self-providing, self-promoting, and self-pleasuring. You're doing whatever you can to protect yourself, 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 yourself. Yeah, and it all comes from aloneness. Remember the girl in high school who was real promiscuous? Remember that girl? So very sad. So very sad. She was looking for love in all the wrong places. And what's at the root of it now? Aloneness. Aloneness and pain. And she found a way to express it that wasn't working. And in a way, her life was so sad. It was painful. Some of you might now realize, oh, yeah. In high school, I did so many dumb things. Or after high school, you got into the, uh, the bar scene and you're running around looking for love. But deep down inside, what is it? What is it? What drove that? Aloneness. Aloneness. At the cross, God dealt with all your sin. The rest of your life, He's dealing with aloneness in your heart. He wants to heal your heart. Okay, so there are two problems in this world. There's a sin problem. And the cross and the resurrection deal with that. And there's an aloneness problem. And it's in your soul. And God wants to comfort you and heal you. And I'm going to give you a chance this morning maybe to meet with God and talk about that pain. Let's talk a little bit more about the heart. Let's go to diagram number two now. The second diagram, as you can see, in your spirit you're holy and righteous, but in your soul is where your pain and your anger and your fear dwell. And notice the soul is larger than the spirit. Yeah, because that's just the way it is in life. Your soul is much larger than your spirit until you really start growing as a Christian. 
and they get more equal in size and hopefully your spirit outgrows and takes over the soul. But for most people, your soul is larger. Your soul is large and in charge. Like when that woman shook her finger at me and told me I don't have to forgive them and love them. Well, that was her soul speaking out. Her soul is large and in charge. And that's, that's just because we grew up developing our souls, didn't we? We grow up and develop and cultivate and nurture our souls. And we don't learn how to nurture our spirit. Did you take a class in kindergarten? Did the teacher call a little group of you aside? And after teaching you how to read, did she teach you how to purify your heart and cleanse it? No. Did you have a class in first grade on how we process pain? No, we didn't learn how to do that. We went to church and didn't learn how to do that. We grew up our whole lives and no one ever taught us how to process pain. I wasn't made for pain. I was made for love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. So when pain flies into my heart, I don't know what to do with it. I don't, I don't know how to get rid of it. And we go through church all our lives. No one taught me how to deal with it. I went to even seminary. They didn't teach us how to deal with it. So 17 years later in ministry, I've totally sabotaged my life and I have to resign because my sin has destroyed my life. But where'd my sin come from? Aloneness. It came from aloneness. I developed patterns of living, defended them in pride, and never learned how to get free. From the root issue, aloneness. I hope I'm, I hope I'm connecting with you. I hope this is pressing buttons. It doesn't matter if you're 92 years old. This is your problem. <laughs> I did a funeral one time for a woman. She had like seven husbands, and she was dying. And her family, one of her nieces called me and said, Carter, would you go see this woman? I'm telling you, I went to her deathbed and I visited with her and I didn't know much about her life. But the Holy Spirit led me to talk about John chapter four, the woman at the well who'd had five husbands. I knew nothing well, the Holy Spirit did. So I talked to her about Jesus meeting that woman and sharing life with her. And it was my first visit, so I just ch chatted a little bit. We talked together. Just wanted her to feel comfortable with me. Then I prayed for her, and I left. I said, I'll come back and see you. But while I was gone, in the next few days, it got bad. Her health got worse. And they called me up. The family said, oh, Carter, Carter, she's worse. They don't know if she's going to live the rest of this day or tomorrow. I said, okay, I'll head back. I went back. She wasn't in a room. She's downstairs somewhere in the labs lying on a green formica table. I mean, cold and stark. And I walked in and she looked up at me. She said, oh, pastor, you're here. I said, yeah, we ain't got much time. So let me tell you something. <laughs> and <laughs> I led her to Christ on that green slab. And she did die in the next a few hours and when I did her funeral three of her husbands were sitting in the room and look I didn't know her very well so I get up and I said hey this girl was a rascal wasn't she she was a rascal you know I picked a nice term there everybody could kind of smile about she was and I remember one of her husbands goes 
I mean, looked like, yeah, that's exactly what she was. She was a rascal, all right. He might have been married to her twice. I don't know. It was wild, man. It was wild. Lots of aloneness pain everywhere in the room. You just got to bring your heart to the Lord. You got to bring your heart with all of its pain and say, God, I got to get rid of this. So we have some scriptures. Let's just look at some scriptures. So uh, if you go to the first scripture at Psalm, what is it? 13, Psalm 13, 1 and 2 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? All right, is he struggling with sin or aloneness? Aloneness, probably. Now, he's probably sinned. But he's feeling deep aloneness. God, where are you? Where are you? You've turned your face from me. Yes. Let's go to the next verse. Psalm 32 or 3 or 3. I can't read. (laughs) Psalm 13. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have my sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The last part of the verse, he's a victim and my enemy just rules over me and I can't do anything about it. But how long will my soul and my heart be filled with sorrow? Sorrow. What is that? Pain. Pain makes you feel alone. And a lot of the sins you do in life, you do them because you felt alone first. And God knows your story. He knows that. He knows a lot of your sin started with a sense of aloneness, deep aloneness, and you went out looking for love. It's like drug and alcoholics, drug addicts and alcoholics. Did you know they're just trying to solve a problem? They're trying to solve a problem. What's the problem? Aloneness. Hurt, pain, growing up, losses, reversals, rejections, betrayals. Aloneness, aloneness, aloneness. I got to feel better. Well, I can tell you, something that always works. Drugs and alcohol always work. They always work. Yeah, that bottle of uh, vodka, it comes from the factory. Always perfectly chemically aligned. It, it works. But your friends, oh, they don't work so well. They chicken out. They don't show up. They're not always there. They say something stupid. They get mad and frustrated with you and lecture you. And yeah, friends don't work as well as a bottle. It always works. It always does the same thing perfectly well. And so we go to rehab. But what do you never talk about at rehab? Aloneness. We don't talk about that. We talk about triggers and how to respond to them. And you can spend the rest of your life learning to respond to triggers. That's very helpful. You'll make a whole lot more progress if you work on pain, shame, and hurt. All right, let's keep going. Uh, where are we now? Psalm 23. Oh, our beloved Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Did we get the rest of that? Yeah, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He's a sheep, you know, so this is all good. Lying down, leading me beside still waters, because... 
sheep can't get next to real rapid water because you know if you were wrapped in a wool blanket you would not want to get into the water because the wool would fill up and you would drown so sheep stand back from rough water they have to have still water and then they'll approach it and sip so god provides for you a place to lie down place to get water and the next verse he restores my soul he restores your soul the soul where you have pain anger fear a deep sense of aloneness and it makes you go do stupid sinful things you don't want to do god restores the soul that's his business that's his business for you every day he took care of sin. Yeah, everything you do that you don't like, he's taking care of that. He'd now like to have the intimacy with you of taking care of what's in your soul. All right, next one. Let's go to the New Testament now. It is not good for man to be alone because God can restore your soul. It's not good for man to be alone. And here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And uh, Paul was always experiencing opposition. And in the book of Acts, there's a few stories where he had lots of persecution. Once in the city of Ephesus, a Jewish silversmith, kind of like a blacksmith, got really angry at him violating their Jewish faith and he attacked Paul and there might have been physical confrontations and uh, once Paul was stoned and drug out of the city for dead and God resurrected him he jumped right up and went back into the city <laughs> yeah so he says you know we had all that affliction in fact one time it was so bad we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself Paul came close to being suicidal at one point in his ministry. Why? Affliction. Where did it land? In his spirit? No, in his soul. In his soul, he got his eyes off of Christ. He began to look at what was happening and looking at the opposition. And I thought, I can't overcome it. It's too much. It's too great. And in his affliction and in all that turmoil, he got into his soul. He received the pain of the affliction and he nurtured the pain. He sat there and nurtured the anger. And he got, he would lie at night and think about it and think, man, you know, no one cares about what I do. I'm out serving God and look at everybody, how they treat me. You know, he got all defense. I can make up in his mind. I've done that. Pastors everywhere have done that. <laughs> yeah. So it's not good for man to be alone. And when you despair of life itself, you are alone. Notice you never commit suicide at a party. You do it alone. You do it alone. Even if you go into the next room, you do it alone. You're feeling this deep sense of aloneness when you take your life. Let's go to the next verse, 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Indeed, he said... We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God who calls into being that which does not exist. God who comes into a place where there is pain and he brings life and lifts us up. Let's go to the next verse. 2 Corinthians 2, 7. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, the other letter, 
There's a story of a man who was having relationship with his stepmother, his father's wife. And Paul said, I hear that's going on. Y'all got to confront that. You've got to do something. And so in reaction to that, the church leadership pounced on this guy and, and really came down hard, we can tell, reading between the lines. Well, now the guy has repented. And so Paul goes back and refers to him, but just briefly this time, and he says, hey, hey, now you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He did repent, and now he feels so ashamed and feels so horrible and thinks, how did I get into that? How did I let the enemy do that to me? How did I participate in such a thing? And he repented, but they were all used to saying, okay, we're going to read you the riot act, you know, you sinner. We're scared of you now, so we're going to make up a bunch of new rules for you. <laughs> and Paul will say, okay, okay, calm down now. L- l- turn and start granting him some forgiveness and love and comfort him. Comfort him. That's 2 Corinthians 2, where in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, we worship the God of all comfort. So take God's comfort, take it to him so that he doesn't get swallowed up in excessive sorrow in his soul because it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. He's feeling very alone. So get back to him, but now with love and comfort. Hmm, okay. Let's go to Galatians 5. Look at this verse in Galatians 5, verse 15. Paul says, hey, if you guys are going to keep biting and devouring one another, watch out. Watch out. Uh, Make sure y'all don't just totally consume one another. Wow, it's the Galatians. They're pretty good folks. The Galatians, and they're biting and devouring one another. Symbolic language for their division. There's envy, jealousy, striving. There's conflict in the church, and Paul calls it out. So are they dealing with one another in the power of the Spirit? No, they're doing it in the power of aloneness, shame and hurt and pain and anger and fear. Then Paul, just right after that, says, let me remind you what the works of the flesh are. Here's how you'll know you're walking according to your flesh. There will be sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, Let's go to the next slide. There is idolatry, that's a heart issue, sorcery, enmity, that's in your soul, striving, that's in your soul, jealousy, that's in your soul, fits of anger in your soul, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, all that arises in the black dot in the soul. When a church divides, somebody's walking according to the flesh, living out of their wounded soul. You know, you can be minding your own business down at church, doing a great job, and someone gets jealous of you. And they start talking about you. And they find some little small fault with you, and they make it large. And, you know, you're minding your own business, having a wonderful time serving the Lord. And all of a sudden, you find out there's someone doesn't like you. Someone's talking about you. And then what happens? Now, you pick it up. And you start thinking, well, who does she think she is? God, amen. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I think about her? And all of a sudden, you're caught up in the same thing, and you're biting and devouring one another. And you were doing just fine the other day. 
But she decided to walk in sin because of her aloneness, and she triggered your old aloneness, and she triggered your old wounds, and it made you vicious. Oh, you didn't want to be there. You didn't ask to be there. But there you are. What are you going to do now? You got to take care of your soul. She's got to take care of her soul. You got to take care of your soul now. You didn't want to be there. Just like in a divorce, you know, you didn't want to be there sometimes. You know, the innocent part didn't want to be there. I know. And when a spouse goes and has an affair, the innocent spouse, the one who stayed home, they didn't want to be there. Now they're battling what? Anger, resentment, bitterness, and a bunch of videos they've made up in their mind as you told the story. Oh, 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 oh. They didn't want to be there, but they're there. It's very unfortunate, but now you've got to take care of your soul. Your spouse does too, and they've got harder work, but we're going to help you take care of your soul now. Yeah, it's painful, sad. The soul, the soul. It's not good for man to be alone because in his aloneness, we will end up doing things we don't want to know, we don't want to do. It's just like adultery. Adultery has a backstory of aloneness. You didn't just do it out of, huh, I think I'll just be stupid today. No, you, you had a backstory of deep aloneness and pain you'd never fixed. We're all sitting there. We're all at this place. We're in our soul. We've got unforgiveness, bitterness, some resentment. We have anger. And all that is secondary to pain. I've been hurt, and it's still there, and I don't know what to do about it. Well, let's go to Isaiah 53. I want to show you something amazing. That there's a loneliness problem before there's a sin problem. Am I right about that? You may say, Carter, I never heard that before. Come on. Did you run this by Marvin? Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we just thought all he was was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We just thought he died on the cross for our sins. Which the next verse says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's sin. He was... Crushed for our iniquities, that's bent and twisted thinking sins. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All right, this is that famous passage 700 years before Christ that tells us he's going to bear our sin upon himself and he'll take our sin away. All right. Go back to the beginning. Go back one slide to the first part of that, Isaiah 53, 4. What's the first thing he took away before he got our sin? Grief and sorrow. Oh, I've never seen that. Yeah. Christ came down and he gathered up the sins of your sister and your mother. And he saw that this sin hurt you. So while he held their sin upon himself, he grabbed your pain and sorrow, and he took that too. I mean, of course, he had to get your sin as well, but you hurt him, so he picked up his sorrow and grief as well. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, oh yes, he took your sin, but oh yes, he took your sorrow and grief. Yes. 
So there is a measure of healing waiting for us with sorrow, grief, and pain. How do you get rid of it? How do we get, how do we get rid of this pain and sorrow? It's written on the wall. Where do you get rid of it? In His presence. When will you get rid of it? When you go there. Where does He live? In me. You sit right now upon a throne in heaven at the right hand of the Lord Jesus who's with you but in you and is your life. And you're at the right hand of the Father whose strong everlasting arms are on that throne seat next to you. And with holy imagination, you can come into the presence of God the Father and God the Son. And you can give them the pain and the sorrow. I led a retreat one time where on Saturday we do these kinds of prayers. We help people pray through pain. But I like to do a little art therapy on Friday night. So Friday night, I hand out sheets of paper, and we've been talking about everything we're talking about today, pain and sorrow and upsets. And I say, I want you to draw a picture of the day that you think your life changed forever and it'd never be the same. When did you get so hurt? And so we draw this picture of where we really got hurt. And then uh, we do some other work around the picture. But I played a song. I said, when you know that memory, I want you to come get a piece of art paper and some markers and you go draw that picture for me. We played the song and everybody got up one by one and got their paper and their markers and they went and drew the picture and everybody left but one woman. One woman stayed. She didn't draw a picture yet. And the song stopped playing. So in quietness, I went over and I said, Shirley, uh, did you come up with the memory? And all of a sudden, she began to shake. <laughs> and I said, I said, wait, we don't have to go anywhere that you're not ready. We don't have to go there. If you're not ready to deal with that memory, we can do, deal with a memory that's not as painful. She stood up and she said, she was 71 years old. 71 years old. She said, I was date raped when I was 17 and I've never told anybody. Oh my, oh my goodness. She just told 12 people. I got her age wrong, 67. From 17 to 67, she'd carried a deep pain and never told anybody and served with an international women's ministry, was in Bible studies all of her life, worked down at church. Everyone loved her. But she carried a deep, deep secret that held her up, kept her in chains, kept her feeling ashamed. Maybe that's why she served so much. She thought, I'll just serve and serve and serve and I'll feel better and I can outrun this thing. But you can't outrun what you carry in your soul with you forever until this day I said would you like to deal with it right now she said yes she sat down I took her hand 
And I said, I want you to pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, you've said in your word that if I draw near to you, you'll draw near to me. Well, I'm drawing near. And I just said, just draw near to the Lord. As soon as you can see him with the eyes of your heart, nod your head. A moment later, she nodded her head. I said, does he have anything with him? Just, I just asked, you know, maybe the Lord brought something. She said, oh, yes, it's a new heart. I said, oh, that must be for the 17-year-old. So she and the Lord Jesus, in her memory, went back to a true actual event. That night, she was lying in bed, feeling so dirty and ashamed, broken and abused, and her heart was wounded badly. She and Jesus went into the room, knelt down by the bed, and I said, I want you to tell that 17-year-old who this is you brought with you to the room tonight. And then I said, ask her if she'd like to get rid of that dark heart of shame and replace it with this one. Of course, the 17-year-old wanted it. And in an amazing miracle, Jesus reached into her heart and pulled out a black substance that she could see. She could see pain and shame come right out of her heart. And then she and Jesus together took the new heart and placed it in there. And it was all in her holy imagination that was surrounded and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I wasn't suggesting and giving her things like manipulating her in a new age ritual. No, I was listening as much as she was as to what was happening. And she was telling it to me. And the Lord healed her that day. He reached in and took out pain and replaced it with newness. I wonder if this morning there's some of you who'd like to get rid of some pain. Is there an old wound in your life? Let's just pray. Would you bow your head, close your eyes, pray with me.